Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Uh, this is Dr. Lewis Blevins of Pituitary World News. Uh, thanks for listening. I've had a very interesting week. Uh, it's been busy. Uh, it's getting busier and busier as time goes on. Part of that is because we see continual new patients, but we also have patients who find that they want to stay with us to receive their ongoing pituitary care. So we do our best to accommodate both new and return patients. I think we do a pretty good job of uh, doing so. I saw two patients today that are worthy of mention. Both had Cushing's and uh, they come to mind because this has <clears throat> been Cushing's Awareness Week or month or whatever. I'm not sure what they call it anymore, but at any rate, um, we published two things on Cushing's this past week. One of those is a uh, World Alliance Report Pituitary Organization's um, uh, webinar that I did where I covered the history of Cushing's from uh, from my viewpoint and some of the seminal contributions that have uh, gotten us to where we are today and enabled us to care for patients the way we do. Uh, the other was a podcast that I uh, did last week on patients with adrenal Cushing's. And uh, if you have adrenal disease or wonder whether you have adrenal disease, that might be a good one to take a listen to. My patients today both had pituitary Cushing's and they're, they're both very interesting, lovely women uh, who uh, hopefully we can continue to uh, assist with their future health care. One of them is a patient I've been seeing for a couple of years now who uh, will be part of a uh, pituitary grand rounds program that we're going to be uh, launching in the very near future where we'll have uh, a doctor for now to be myself and, and a patient usually one of my patients who consents to the program. And we'll discuss the history and the physical and the presenting features and the workup and relate that to what we know in the literature about uh, uh, presentation, diagnosis, treatment, and long-term outcomes. And um, this uh, particular patient, I think, will uh, be very, very illustrative of the point that uh, patients have their own normal range for cortisol secretion. Uh, we think of the normal range, say for urine-free cortisol, it's five to 50. That encompasses a normal population of normal people. By definition, two and a half percent of people are gonna be below that, but be normal, and two and a half percent are gonna be above that, but be normal. And sometimes as, uh, uh, as we evaluate and manage patients who have um, hypercortisolism, we have to figure out is a high level normal for that person? Is it related to stress or is it really hypercortisolism? But the, the first patient I mentioned who will be part of the endocrine uh, pituitary grand rounds uh, illustrates that she needs a urine cortisol around 15 to, to feel healthy. Anything higher than that, she has Cushingoid features and symptoms and signs suggested thereof. Actually, I saw four patients with Cushing's today, and I want to talk about three of them today. So that's the first one. The second one's a very interesting woman who had surgery in 2013, 
and was rendered disease-free. Then around 2015, it was clear that she had recurrent disease, so she received gamma knife radio surgery. So that was eight years ago. <clears throat> and now she's presenting with some fatigue, weight gain, and insomnia. And it's clear that she has recurrent disease and that her urine cortisols are 53 and 59. And uh, her MRI is negative, so we're going to start her own medical therapy to control her disease state while we wait for a tumor to rear its ugly head, so to speak, so we can then deliver targeted therapy to that tumor, whether it be surgery or radiotherapy. She's another one of the patients that illustrates the difficulties in gaining control of this disease process, usually due to microscopic invasive disease. The surgeon removes all the tumor, they don't see anything, but there's clearly microscopic invasive disease. These patients uh, can have recurrences much later the latest I've seen is 28 years out from original surgery. This is a patient who's eight years out from getting control with gamma knife radiotherapy, uh, who's in need of additional treatment. Uh, and uh, is someone that we will be treating with uh, medical therapy, again, while we wait and watch for the evidence of the tumor. Uh, the other patient I'd mentioned at the outset of the program was a very nice lady who lives in Chicago, <clears throat> metropolitan area. And uh, she's been sick for about a year uh, with uh, some Cushingoid features. Interestingly, she's one of the few patients I've seen who lost weight with the hypercortisolism. Uh, most people gain weight, but I have seen probably now, this will be probably she's my fourth or fifth patient I've seen who lost weight with hypercortisolism. But she's developed a myopathy, lots of muscle mass loss, uh, widening of the facies, uh, easy bruising, etc., uh, borderline changes in her blood pressure, even though it's not uh, distinctly elevated, and also uh, some borderline uh, hyperglycemia. Even though she doesn't meet a criteria for diabetes mellitus, her A1C level has increased. And she was evaluated. Urine cortisol levels were pretty, pretty high in the 500s on more than one occasion. Uh, and her ACTH levels were inappropriately normal because norm in the usual setting of having such a high cortisol level, you should turn off your ACTH levels. Uh, so she had uh, ACTH-dependent hypercortisolism. She did not suppress much at all with dexamethasone. Uh, all of this points to the fact that she might have pituitary disease. She had an MRI demonstrating a 4 to 5 millimeter tumor in the inferior aspect of her pituitary gland. I've referred her to Dr. Kunwar, the surgeon that I work with at UCSF, uh, who will see her next week and uh, probably get her to surgery. And she should be a person who we can uh, render disease-free with uh, the operation. Now, let's talk a little bit about responses to surgery in patients with hypercortisolism due to pituitary adenomas. The first thing I'll say is that the, the uh, best predictor of whether or not you'll be cured from surgery or not is the size of the tumor. Microadenomas cure rates are higher than they are with macroadenomas and certainly much higher than with tumors that invade the cavernous sinus. The problem is that many macroadenomas invade. Some of the microadenomas do as well. Ed Laws has done a number of, uh, a famed neurosurgeon in the Harvard program has done a, a number of studies where he biopsies the hole where a tumor came from and showed that a significant proportion of these tumors are microscopically invasive still. The reason the cure rate's high is that many of those tumors have had their blood supply amputated, if you will, or disrupted from the surgery, and those residual cells usually die off. 
but certainly some of those cells live and they can secrete uh, proteins called growth factors that can grow new blood vessels and and then the cells can reestablish a home and the residual cells can grow and form another tumor deposit. So when patients have recurrences, it's usually their the, original cells still there that have simply over time uh, been able to reestablish themselves and continue to multiply and ultimately secrete enough hormone to overwhelm the system. So all these patients, even with late recurrences, it's usually the original tumor that was still there. Sometimes they grow slowly, like my patient with 28 years to recur, and other times they grow relatively quickly uh, within two to three years. And uh, this patient uh, that I spoke about earlier today, now eight years from gamma knife radio surgery, that's a, that's a reasonably slow growth uh, rate or recurrence, but it certainly happens. And we believe it's due to the original tumor cells that are still present and maybe weren't hit with the radiotherapy. We call that a margin miss, for example. Uh, or uh, we're resistant to radiotherapy and continue to just grow and secrete hormone uh, regardless. So at any rate, at our institution, the cure rates for these microadenomas is around 92 to 95%. <clears throat> the second variable that plays a role as to whether or not you're rendered disease-free with surgery, in addition to tumor size, is the experience of the operating neurosurgeon. So if you have Cushing's, you really, truly want your first operation to be with the best neurosurgeon that you can find. Uh, and you know, you're probably going to have to go to a tertiary medical center for that, to a pituitary center. And you might even have to select amongst the different pituitary centers to figure out which one you should go to to get the best results. You might have to get on an airplane and cross the country, as our patient from Chicago is going to do, to have access to one of the best surgeons in the country. There are about three to four, maybe five surgeons that I would consider to be the top ones in the country. And uh, I'm not going to advertise for any of them or dissuade you from going to any others. But my recommendation is do your research, go to the busiest and the best pituitary centers and let your first operation be with the surgeon who is going to have the experience necessary to give you the highest likelihood of cure to begin with. And if you've selected that surgeon, you weren't cured, they're probably a pretty good choice for your second operation if you need a second operation too. But certainly you could then switch to one of the other top tier surgeons as well to try to give yourself the best opportunity. Usually with Cushing's first two surgical procedures are the, are the most important. If, you're, if you have recurrent or residual disease, you want to really see the best healthcare team possible with this disease state. You don't want to, to finally get to the best center after two or three operations and radiotherapy and, and all of that. So I mentioned there were four patients with Cushing's. The last patient that I uh, saw that it was really more, more or less interactions on uh, the MyChart message is a patient who has had residual disease, not cured by surgery, has tried several medical therapies and were having difficulty controlling her uh, urine cortisol excretion rates. And uh, in the back of my mind is the, the use of adrenalectomy for this particular patient. So I wanted to make a few comments about adrenalectomy. This is a last resort uh, in my practice for Cushing's. Some centers say that this is a low risk procedure and you should consider it sooner rather than later in patients with hypercortisolism. And I buy into that in 
so far as the fact that the procedure itself in good hands is safe and effective. But the problem is you're trading one disease for another. And adrenal insufficiency is a serious condition, just as is Cushing's. With adrenalectomy, patients are required to take a mineralocorticoid known as fludrocortisone and a glucocorticoid in the form of whichever one your physician uh, enjoys uh, uh, treating with. But uh, it's a lifelong dependency and you have to learn to adjust these with stress and uh, to uh, take appropriate precautions to, to make sure that you ad advise physicians who might be doing procedures that requ require steroids and so on. Uh, so adrenalectomy for me is a last resort when everything else fails. We can't get control of the tumor. Uh, everything we throw at the adrenal glands or the tumor doesn't seem to work sometimes. And uh, in that setting, uh, we usually um, will proceed with adrenalectomy, but we spend a lot of time educating patients how to manage their adrenal insufficiency. So those are my musings regarding Cushing syndrome. Let's take a little bit of a break here. And I'll see if I can get Jorge on the phone uh, to have a conversation with me. I'm going to try to play for you a tune that I uh, recorded and uh, performed on the uh, Scottish border pipes. Uh, border pipes are from the borderlands between Scotland and Ireland. These are in the same pitch as the Great Highland pipes, but you play them with a bellows. And this tune was written by a gentleman named Bill Telfer, and it's entitled Border ballad. I play it differently than I, I did when I recorded this. Now I tend to slow it down and focus and drag out some of the more mournful notes that might be present in this song. But I, in this recording, I played it pretty much as he plays it. Anyway, enjoy the border ballad while I take this little break. So that was a border ballad, originally written by Bill Telfer. <clears throat> so I wanted to talk a little bit about thyroid hormone uh, replacement uh, as well today. One of my patients had an interesting conundrum. She was on thyroid hormone replacement for hypothyroidism. And uh, this is the lady that's having the recurrence after radiotherapy in 2015, by the way. And her um, T4 level had fallen, or strike that, her T3 level had fallen, but her T4 level 
was um, high normal and her TSH level has risen. Uh, previously, she'd had relatively normal thyroid functions on the current regimen. And uh, now they're uh, distinctly abnormal with no changes and she's been compliant with her medication. And she brought that up at the end of the visit. To me, when I saw the labs, I thought this is a classic finding in patients who have been treated with steroids or who are uh, frankly having Cushing's or hypercortisolemic. And what happens with thyroid hormone is that the thyroid gland itself makes T4 and T3. And the number refers to the number of iodine molecules on the thyroid hormone backbone. And there are deiodinase enzymes in the liver and the kidney and other tissues as well, including the hypothalamus and maybe the pituitary. And their role is to take one of those iodines off to make T4 into T3. And then T3 is the active molecule that binds to the thyroid hormone receptor that's located inside of cells. It gets translocated to the nucleus where thyroid hormone has its effects. And when you look at this deiodinase function, there are a number of drugs and situations that can affect that. One of the drugs is steroids. So anytime you have high steroids, you're going to block the conversion of T4 to T3. And in this patient, my speculation is that her high cortisol levels blocked the conversion of T4 to T3. The low T3 led to a rise in her TSH. And ordinarily, one might think to start T3 in this patient, uh, and that would certainly be a reasonable approach to treatment. However, the best treatment is to treat her hypercortisolism. So we're starting her on a medication to block cortisol production, and that should lower her um, uh, TSH by simply allowing more T3 uh, to be made by the conversion uh, from T4 to T3 uh, in that setting. So uh, we elected not to change our medications. This is a classic example of a situation where as a, uh, as a patient, you really want to see physicians who know all the little caveats about thyroid hormone replacement so that they can uh, figure out precisely what your needs are or recognize when laboratory studies are different than what they used to be. For example, to recognize the effect of biotin on the laboratory test, to not believe the thyroid functions before the change is made. I'll give you another example. I had one patient who had central hypothyroidism as a consequence of pituitary tumor apoplexy and was on thyroid hormone replacement uh, for her particular situation. And she was very stable, doing very well for a number of years. And then one day came in with a high T4 level and a high T3 level. And her TSH level, which was uh, previously uh, in the low part of the normal range, was now fully suppressed. And she had been taking her medication. So the first thing I did was examine her neck, and I found a nodule. And then I did a scan, and I proved that she had what we call a toxic adenoma, which is a tumor of the thyroid gland that produces T4 and T3. So it sort of explained why a patient with no pituitary function suddenly had thyroid function from their pituitary gland. We ended up stopping the medication, taking out her thyroid gland, putting her back on thyroid hormone, and she's doing fine. Well, Jorge has just joined us. Jorge, how are you today? Uh, how are you? Apologies for the lateness, but there was a long-winded <clears throat> telephone call that I was on oh. and completely lost track of time. Well, we have all had those long-winded phone calls. Hopefully this one turned out to your satisfaction because they don't always when they're long-winded, right? It so. Actually, I was uh, talking to somebody, to somebody about uh, Pituitary World News and about some of our social media and uh, 
marketing <coughs> needs to expand our audience and uh, look at uh, search engine optimization and all those technical things that are uh, important uh, to publications like ours. Oh, excellent. Make sure that that our reach is as broad as possible. Excellent. I've been talking to our group of listeners about uh, Cushing's, since this is sort of the tail end of Cushing's Week or whatever it's called these days. And uh, I even announced the fact that we're going to start our our Pituitary Grand Rounds program. Oh, excellent. And one of the patients I saw with Cushing's today wants to participate. Oh, excellent. Understands that we'll be be doing video and reviewing her case history and treatment, etc. And yeah, we're very excited about that Grand Rounds program. I think everybody that I've uh, talked to uh, about it, it's very interested in uh, in seeing the details. And uh, so, yeah, yeah. Well, let me talk a little bit more about it. uh, Okay, uh, us talk about it, but to to share with our listeners, Grand Rounds is something that used to be. In the early days of medicine, a physician would wheel a patient in an auditorium and use that patient to teach and to educate others about a particular diagnosis or physical findings or what have you. Um, and then they evolved to sort of a everybody gets together and hears a lecture on a topic. And the lecturer might talk about a patient case very briefly, but they spent more time talking about science and you know, diagnosis and treatment and things like that, but more of a traditional sit down and get a state of the art review type of lecture. And that's certainly the way things were when I was in my uh, internal medicine training. We did have another conference that was a case conference where a patient would be presented. Uh, everybody would read the case beforehand, and then you, you put a guess into a box about what you thought it was. The resident who got the most number of guesses right at the end of the year would win something. But every presentation was a faculty member who was asked to present the case, would present the case, again, just from the history, not with a live patient. And um, he would read the history and talk about why he thought the patient had one disease or another. It was kind of a mystery diagnosis type of a thing, like the show house or whatever. And, uh, and that was a very, it was my favorite conference. It was a very entertaining, often useful approach to the practical aspects of medicine. Then when I went to my fellowship at Johns Hopkins, it was the old fashioned way of people, if they wanted to, could bring a patient to the conference and present that patient and talk with the patient in front of the audience and illustrate key historical and physical features, et cetera. I loved it. It was, it was the best conference of all. You and I did something like that at the ACE meeting several years back, maybe 2018 or 19 or so where yes. we, we mimicked that. And it was a tremendous response by all the physicians in the mm-hmm. audience. And, yeah. Uh, I remember several coming to me at that conference and saying I was the first, and they were all endocrinologists, I believe, that I was the first acromegaly patients they, the patient they had seen. That's pretty remarkable, right? It, so, it really is. It was, it was sort of an eye-opener for me. Yeah, it speaks uh, to how rare was, the disease is and how not every endocrinologist might not... They, they may not be the one that you want taking care of you if they don't exactly. have any experience. So you experience. really need to go to pituitary centers if you have that yeah. condition. Yeah, absolutely. That definitely that's the takeaway. I uh, I was going to mention that the um, I participate as a patient and a lecturer, I guess, uh, at at the University of California Berkeley with a joint program with UCSF using a case based learning approach. And these first to second year medical students. Uh, review a case of acromegaly that's loosely based on my 
on my experience and then they get to meet me and ask questions and it's a it's just a fascinating uh, exercise uh, of learning because i think um none of those kids will ever forget somebody with acromegaly yeah and regardless of where they go um it, so it's such a um interesting way of doing it so i think these grand rounds will be will be fantastic to illustrate and to teach and to discuss and and to inform tremendous learning opportunity and as you know one of the one of my favorite groups of students that i teach are patients and i think this is going to be good for patients to see and hear and they'll learn from the journeys of the people that we feature in these grand rounds presentations and uh Hopefully this is going to catch fire and physicians and medical students will also learn from these experiences as well. It really is the best way to learn medicine. Uh, William Osler or somebody had a quote one time about uh, learning medicine by reading and not seeing patients would be like trying to learn to sail a boat without actually getting in the boat and learning to sail. So it's the same analogy as, you know, I sail and I'm a physician and the, the thing I like about sailing is it's very analogous to medicine as far as the application of the art and science of the craft. And you have to do both to be good at it and to do a lot of it to be good at it as well. So yeah. we're, ho- we're hoping that this series is going to be entertaining for patients, entertaining and that, that they'll enjoy learning through this process and uh, hearing the stories. And another thing I think that it will do is it'll help people understand they're not the only ones rolling, rowing the canoe down the river. There are other people in their shoes and other people have the same same uh, tragedies in life and some of the mm-hmm. same challenges to deal with every day as they uh, try to take care of themselves with regards to their health problems. Uh, and that might, it, it might also point people in a direction where, oh, they're doing that. I'm going to talk to my doctor about that problem as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think so. it's a very, and also very entertaining way of imparting knowledge and information so yeah um, i think we're the first sort of uh group like this that's that has a radio show the first pituitary radio show ever now we'll probably be the first group that has a pituitary grand rounds uh, (laughs) that uh is uh for all who might want to learn uh, whether they join in live or watch the most of the video recorded, I suppose. So yeah. when people are looking at those videos, hopefully they'll, they'll see this as you Yeah, and I think also the, the cool thing that we should point out is that it allows for, you know, a, a guest doctor and a guest patient to go through, uh, you know, do it uh, with the ground rounds as well. So it just yeah. opens up, opens up a whole, a whole, uh, uh, new way of looking at it. So I'm, I'm very excited about yeah. it. Uh, I, I should tell people that Jorge is going to be the, the alpha test. The guinea <laughs> so pig. The guinea pig. We're going to be the first. We're going to try this platform to see if it works. And the patient I mentioned earlier about Cushing's will probably be our second case. But we're interested in those of you out there who have a particularly interesting or everybody is interesting. There's no uninteresting patient. But if you have a particular interest in sharing your story and uh, would want to be interviewed and have have this reviewed with your doctor or with me or your surgeon, we're happy to sort of feature you on the Grand Rounds uh, circuit as well. Yeah, yeah. So well, let us know of your interests. Make a case. We're we're happy to to uh, to include 
those who have uh, some particular interesting or fascinating condition that you th you think others would learn from, whether you're talking about doctors learning or other patients learning. Diabetes, insipidus, vasopressin deficiency, whatever we want to call that now, trying to get to vi vasopressin deficiency more often than not. But uh, uh, that's, a, that's an example. Growth hormone deficiency, you name it, we want to cover it with our Grand Rounds yeah. program. Talk about uh, the former diabetes insipidus. It's a very interesting uh, guide for patients that we published today that came from the Got Diabetes Insipidus uh, group uh, to help people uh, understand and, and uh, inform as to the, uh, the best approach uh, to management pre, during, and post-surgeries. So it's a very interesting uh, Yeah, that was excellent. Uh, I, I'm really glad that Pat was able to put that together with some uh, other physicians. From and, Pat uh, Gilroy, yeah, that's yeah. right. And, that, and uh, uh, we just published that um, uh, actually a couple of hours ago. I just went on the site. So if you're interested in looking at that, go to the, go to the website and, uh, and check it out. It's on the front page. It's really interesting. Yeah, I would recommend printing that out and keeping that with you. And if you ever find yourself in a hospital or an emergency room, and you need to share with physicians who look at you with a blank stare when you say not diabetes mellitus, yeah. uh, then you give them that and they are going to at least get oriented to the right thing. And if they don't follow that guideline, they can hopefully call someone who can help or yeah. they can go to a website to learn more. Maybe our website. We have a ton of materials on diabetes insipidus on Pituitary World News. So yeah, lots, and of, this, lots of good resources there. Yeah. And this uh, you can download and print. So there's a link to a download uh, uh, to the to the guide, so which which can be downloaded and printed. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. So what else is new in your realm of uh, pituitary world news? Uh, well, I was just uh, uh, like I was saying, I was just discussing. We're always thinking about new ways to reach uh, patients that may not be on Facebook or that may not. Uh, um, uh, search you know the the the, the internet um, for information we have a pretty good what it's called search engine optimization uh, program that allows the this the site to pituitary news to come up when people are searching for certain things uh, but that can always be improved and the the fort unfortunately for nonprofits like ours is that these these um, are being monetized today, and the people that are paying a lot of money for to be on, you know, on top of uh, of the of the rankings are the ones that are getting, you know, the attention. Uh, we are trying to do it in a way that is smarter, using their algorithms uh, and learning uh, as much as we can to do it well. So then you're exposed to the information. We um, it is. Like I said, unfortunately, these companies are changing their algorithms constantly, and uh, it's very difficult to understand uh, what exactly what it is that they're doing. Um, yeah. So um, I encourage you uh, to to go to the website and and subscribe uh, to Pituitary World News, and all we need is your email. We do not uh, track any of the information. Uh, the cookies that are, we have in the site are just essential cookies. We do absolutely no tracking, and we will never share your email with anybody. So if you if you subscribe, you can expect to get one or two emails from us uh, a week, 
which is uh, the, the amount of things that we publish on average, one or two things a week, uh, either an article or a podcast, sometimes three. But that's pretty much the average. So you wouldn't, you, it's not going to inundate your, your, um, your inbox with a lot of information. And this would be interesting information. And the reason we ask you to do that is because we know that uh, even though we publish and we post on some, a lot of the advocacy groups, the algorithm sometimes will not show you our content and it's based on how you, you know, use your, your social media. So right now we're sharing information on Facebook and Twitter and on LinkedIn, and we are feverishly working to understand Instagram <laughs> and see how we can make it work for us. Because I think a lot of people are using Instagram too. Um, and those are the, the you know, the main uh, four. And obviously we're open to any suggestions, you know, from our listeners. There are a lot of people that are very good at social media. And and if uh, if you have any suggestions, we're all ears. We're trying to get better and more efficient and to reach more people as we can, as many people as we can, I should say. Yeah, the social media algorithms are fascinating to me. Um, every once in a while, I have a, a friend on Facebook that I haven't seen anything from for a while, and you wonder, are they still alive? Yeah. You go to their site, they've been very active, but for some reason, Facebook's not sharing it. Then when you hit their site, you start getting those feeds. From yes. their new, yeah. That's that's. Maybe that's because it's so complex now, and the algorithms have to have to be restrictive to enable to, uh, people to um, uh, not be overwhelmed. Maybe the servers will crash at Facebook if everybody was getting everybody's feed, and no one would have time to do anything but read feeds. Yeah. So yeah. I, I understand why they need to restrict it, but for a, for for medical information, uh, I think it's still always best to, like you said, subscribe to our program. Go to our website or go to our website once a week or yeah, once these, a month and see yeah. the first of every month and see what's new. Yeah. 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 And these are, you know, it's interesting because these are private groups uh, sometimes that we post on. Uh, for example, the Got Diabetes Insipidus group is, or the Acromegaly Support Group, um, the CSRF, you know, the Cushing's uh, Research Foundation. Um and they're all private groups, but still, uh, we've seen instances where, um, particularly when we have <coughs> these roundtables or in, in people, we want people to join something, and I, I will get comments saying, oh, we didn't see your feed. I say, well, but the, you know, we probably, you, it was probably in uh, in the group, but not in your in your specific feed that, uh, that yeah. you see. So, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's all changed. Uh, the thing that you posted on diabetes insipidus this afternoon, I got a, a message from Facebook that said boost this post for ten bucks. You know, the one yeah. Pay, and they'll probably just send it to a click farm where a bunch of people click on it and like it, and suddenly it looks looks to you, the user, like oh, lots of people saw my post that was worth ten dollars, but it might have gone to people who are just paid to click on stuff and don't really. We don't. We don't. Yeah don't really need to see the information in the first place. So that's... we don't know who it goes to, which makes it almost like I'd rather, you know, spend the $10 on something else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, but having said that, I, I would tell you that I, you know, I, I, I would like to understand it a little more to make a, a, a more informed decision that if you're going to use some of our hard-end money from our contributors to do this, that it truly, you can track 
what kind of return it will get. Yeah. And right now we can't. Uh, we don't know. Yeah. You know, we get a few more clicks, but you were like you're saying, it's coming in. They may be irrelevant. Yeah. If they're not landing Correct. into the right uh, right inbox or the right Facebook page where Correct. people yeah. need or want the information. Exactly. So our website's always best. One of the things I like about our website is it's pituitary world news. And if you type in pituitary, sometimes we come up in the top 10, but sometimes we don't. If you yeah. put pituitary world, we're there. Yeah. So I, I tell my patients, and I probably send 60 to 70% of my patients to our website. So you just type, think of yourself as living in the pituitary world, since you have this condition. Put pituitary world in Google and you'll get it. Yeah. And we have so much content that the best thing to do is just put in the search engine what you're interested in learning, if it's Cushing's or acromegaly or pituitary surgery or Dr. Kunwa or Dr. Agi uh, or, or my name or uh, psychology or psychological issues, whatever you want, put it in the search engine and usually you'll find anything. Yeah. People don't spend as much time cruising sites as they used to. So I mean, one one good way is to go to the Dr. Blevins Corner or Jorge's Corner or our video series and just click and see what's there. But that could take you days because we've been doing this for about nine years now. Uh, so use that search engine. It seems to be very functional. I, I used it just the other day uh, to figure out how many um, articles and podcasts we had on diabetes insipidus. It's about 16 to 20 or so. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and uh, it's, it's a good resource to, to be able to yeah. use that search engine. It's amazing. Sometimes you stop and look and say, oh, wow. I, the, the other day, what was it? Yesterday, we published, or the day before, we published your your last podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, in the, we put uh, season nine, episode five or six, whatever it was. And I just, when I wrote, down, wrote it down, I'm going, season nine? That means there's nine years of this. It seems like yesterday. I, I agree. <laughs> I remember sitting and doing some of those first podcasts thinking, I wonder if anybody will ever listen to these things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I think we've helped so many people. One of the patients yeah. I described today um, uh, is a, is a wonderful lady that lives in Illinois who literally found me online through pituitary world news. Yeah. And she's going to come out and have her Cushing's treated by Dr. Kunwar. So, Wonderful. you know, to, when, when I saw her, I was thinking to myself, you know, you're making a difference when people are finding good surgeons and good health care as a result. Not, not to say that she should come see me, but I can present her to the, I, who I think is the best surgeon in the country. Yeah. So she can have the very best potential outcome with her pituitary surgery. And to me, it makes it all well worth it. And then I, I, I can tell patients to go to my website and learn about growth hormone deficiency uh, in advance of the visit when we're going to talk about it. And they come in, yeah, I listen to all your podcasts and all this. And we have a real dialogue about growth hormone deficiency. They're informed. I always tell patients, I want you to be smarter than every other doctor you're going to see about yeah. your condition, whether it's adrenal insufficiency or, or vasopressin deficiency or Cushing's or acromegaly. And I think that as a practicing physician, pituitary world news helps me do that. And I hear from other other physicians that they send their patients to our sites to learn as well. Yeah. So I, I encourage people, go on the site, play around, see what's there. You might find something that might alter the trajectory of your health care. Uh, if you can see something or learn about something that your physician hasn't addressed with you. Uh, and, uh, yeah. and we're happy to, to play that role and have a 
have an indirect effect on your lives and your health care without ever meeting you. So it's a, it's a good feeling yeah. to be doing this program. You know, it is one of the most incredible feelings when somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I, I recognize you from the podcast or I, I, I recognize your voice. <laughs> I, have, I was in Spain you know, in October, as you know, with the endocrine conference there. And somebody came up to me and said, I, I listened to all your podcasts in Spanish. I said, well, do you speak? He obviously spoke very good English, but he had every podcast that we've ever published on his list at the, on the Apple podcast. And oh, showed that's him. Good. I said, I've listened to, I have three or four that I still have to listen to. I said, you made my day because we have no idea. You know, sometimes when we do these things, I mean, we know how many people are here, but, you know, that it actually is having an impact. And it's so good to hear that, you know. Yeah, uh, so great. we encourage people to let us know. You is, know he also, the one, is he the one who referred to you as the podcast guy? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's, you're, the, you're the podcast guy, right? I said, yes. <laughs> that's great. That's awesome. Well, nine years. Next year is our 10th. And I yeah. think that uh, this year, because of some scheduling snafus. We're not going to have our annual pituitary CME conference at UCSF. We're going to do it next year. But I think next year we should have a, a pituitary conference for pituitary world news. Yes. Uh, and just yeah. uh, for patients and just get people yeah. to come out. I don't, I don't yeah. want to do it associated with UCSF, but it'll be UCSF faculty and maybe some other faculty from the region playing a role in that as well. That would be fantastic. But, uh, I think it should be a an independent, freestanding pituitary world news patient conference yeah. next year. Yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned for that. Yeah. For the dates, I think uh, to talk about the dates because we've been looking for dates for this year as well, and it's really interesting to see how many conferences and patient advocacy group uh, gr meetings there are. So it's almost difficult to find. A, a weekend or two or three days where you can act would it make sense from a timing standpoint to do one of these. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, I think it's all that pent up demand from COVID. I think uh, you're right. That's exactly right. You're right on the money there. That's the problem at UCSF is that we were supposed to have our pituitary conference and we had picked a date and it turned out that, uh, the surgeons had agreed to that date and then they realized they have to be away at a conference. So we tried to get yeah. another date and our CME program said, listen, we are booked. We don't have any free weekends until 2024. Yeah. So uh, we're going to select September, 2024 for our physicians conference update. But I yeah. think it's the pent up demand. People are ready to have conferences. People are ready to get out. Uh, you just attended a Cushing's, uh, uh Research Foundation, Support and Research Foundation conference, I believe. Yes. Um, yeah. How well attended was that? I th I was great. They did it uh, in conjunction with the Adrenal Insufficiency Group, mm -hmm. uh, and it was very very well attended. Uh, the comp the presentations were excellent, uh, as as always, um, and there was there's always some good give and take learning about, uh, you know, what, what patients are going through and some of the plans they have. Uh, we, as you know, um, are, we, we like to think that we are the amplif amplifier of the work that all these advocacy groups do, the, mm -hmm. the acromegaly community and the Cushing's Foundation and all these other groups too. So more people belong to these groups and more people can, can improve the way they work and with their physicians and you know, the knowledge they get and the support they get from the groups. I think they're fantastic. Mm -hmm. So 
the conference was excellent. I was very glad to to uh, to have attended it and uh, learn you know a bunch of things and it's always always interesting. But for me, the most interesting thing is to listen to to patients and uh, to talk to them about pituitary wellness and um, come up with new ideas on on a few things that we could do and. Uh, for example, there's some very interesting discussions uh, that were recorded, and we're trying to repurpose some of that audio so we can create a short podcast to uh, to show people what patients talk about. You know, oh, cool. Patients. That's a really and, good idea. Yeah, so so we're working on that. There's some <clears throat> legalities to it because we didn't ask people to. So, But we can we can do that. We can go back and, and ask them yeah. to agree to participate yeah. without before we publish anything, obviously. That's um, a really so, good idea. I, I yeah. like that because this yeah. that's part of what Pituitary World News is all about is giving patients a voice and uh, yes, not and only access pres- and information, but a voice, share your yeah. story. You know, that's... Yeah. The, the presentations are available. We have three uh, now. We, we, have, we participated in the Canadian, uh, which was early, uh, late last year, uh, there's some excellent pre- presentations on video available. We participated in the um, in the Barrow uh, uh, <coughs> Institute, Neurological Institute in Phoenix, mm-hmm. which was done with the Magic Foundation, and that was a great. Those those present those videos will be available on the site this week, and um, there's you know the, the squishings. Uh, uh, links to the presentations and the video presentations that we will be making available so people can, if they didn't get to the conference, they can see them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are <coughs> those are very very interesting. Usually uh, very informative, and just like the you know all of the presentations that that we do on PWN. So, do you... Again, it's amplifying amplifying this knowledge. So the people that can't get to the meeting can still see if they're interested in these presentations. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. Do you have an idea how many people attended, and do, what's your sense for whether patients are willing least, to get on planes and fly to something like this or drive? At least it was, yeah, I'm going to say there was at least 200 patients in. The, My goodness, that's a large group. Answer. Yeah, and Portland. It was in Portland, Oregon. Portland is a relatively easy place to get to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I think it was a 50-50 between Cushing's and the the, uh, the adrenal insufficiency group. Um, and uh, some of the presentations were joined, so everybody attended. Um, mm-hmm. So it was, it was interesting. Very good. So you were able to make it back home. Is your house still buried in snow? <laughs> I mean, it's it's uh, quite amazing. We have... Uh, you know, for April 6th, which usually the snow is starting to disappear, there's 15-foot snow berms around the house. That's you know, the incredible. driveways are dry. The, the, the snow has moved away from the house. Uh, but uh, it's incredible, the amount of snow that we had this year. Yeah, I saw your Three photographs. Days. It was just absolutely incredible. I, we should put one on PWN so people could see. Yeah. And then the, the photographs I've seen of other places in the Sierra Nevada mountains and, you know, even in Utah, it's just, you know, they're talking about 750 to 800 inches of snow. Yeah. So how well, much is the, that? That's like 60 feet of snow that they've yes. had this year. That's crazy. Yeah. I think Heavenly was saying 60 or 58 to 60 up at the, the ridge. 
Yeah. I, I don't know what Kirkwood is reporting, but it just so unimaginable were, amounts of snow to me, you know, that's uh... Yeah, this was this was one of a kind, I think, and well they it was I think the record it didn't it didn't break the record, but it's the same amount of snow that was reported in 1952 which in, was the in, record, yeah. Which was the record um they started in 1950, I believe, yeah. tracking the, the wow. snow. And we're supposed to have rain in the Bay Area this weekend, so that might mean snow for you next week. Yeah, there's or a little bit of rain. So probably a little bit of rain, and I think now the concern is that all of this snow doesn't melt all at once, mm -hmm. because that oh, there'll be flash, there'll be floods, you know, yeah. huge issue, particularly in the Central Valley. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we'll have we'll have floods in the Central Valley, and you know, unfortunately, one of the great tragedies of California every year when the snow starts to melt is that people do white water rafting on the rivers that are draining the Sierra Nevada mountains, and there's always people that get caught in currents and drown. Yeah. So, but this year it's going to be very, very dangerous. It'll be a very dangerous year. So, if any of you are out there and you plan on doing the rafting in the rivers, just keep in mind it's going to be. A lot of current this year, and uh, yeah. you have to be very careful, uh, if not just pass on this year. Yeah, because yeah. of the danger. So, I I hope that California can figure out a way to divert some of this to our underground aquifer. Um, it all, I mean, it all belongs back in the ocean, but it also belongs in our aquifer, so we have water. I think yeah. our drought is finally over, uh, but uh, I think we should do a better job of figuring out how to capture some of this snow melt. Uh, I agree. Of I think running it off. Yeah. I think there's some it's a, it's, a, it's a good work for engineers to figure out how to retain some of that water to feed it um you know to, to, for the aquifer like you're saying so the underground water gets because I don't know if that has improved that much I, I think I've I've seen um both sides people are saying yeah it really has and people are saying it hasn't done anything for the underground yeah. aquifers yet yeah California is full of a bunch of naysayers, though, so it's, uh, it's hard to hard, or, hard to believe everything you hear out here, you know. Or so. political, you know. Yeah, yeah. Whatever, yeah. Although politics, so uh, most of you don't live in California who are listening, but the politics of water management in California is a very fascinating, long-standing history about the uh, damming of uh, valleys in the Sierra Nevadas to create water supplies for the cities and the transfer of water from Northern California to Southern California and uh, the uh, the siphoning off and the use for agriculture, which uh, of course benefits the state in the form of taxes, but you know, we feed mm -hmm. the world uh, from our Central Valley. So it's just incredible amount of food that that's grown and goes elsewhere. Yeah. I saw an interesting thing on the water board uh, window in a little town called Guerneville, where they actually uh, had a very curious thing about the water in California. And they were stating something to the fact that only 6% of the water usage in California is by residents. So when they yes, ask us I not to that. water our grass or, or, or not wash our car, it's really making a very infinitesimal difference on the water supply. 27% of it's used for agriculture. I think it was 10% or so is used by municipalities and the remainder runs back into the ocean. Um, yeah. So, you know, we need to just, if we could capture the, you know, 1% from the runoff, then we could sort of wash our cars and 
drink a glass of water whenever you wanted and not have to have to ration in our homes. But um, it's highly politicized. And uh, there are books on the topic of the of the water issues in California. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, people people have different uh, different approaches to it. Some say the drought's not over. It'll never be over. That's the same group that says it didn't rain enough. We're going to have wildfires. And then the next year it rained too much. We're going to have brush growth and we're going to have wildfires. So, you know, to some people, we're always going to have a drought or we're always going to have wildfires. So you have to to recognize that that's how some people think when you're, when you're looking into these issues. Yeah. So uh, I I can also mention uh, some of our, uh, guests for a live show coming up. Uh, we're trying to find the schedules, but we have uh, Dr. Eliza Gear, who's going to join us for a podcast, live talk, um, I believe, or a podcast to talk about her work um, at Sloan Catering. And uh, uh, we are planning a, uh, a talk with uh, endocrine nurses, Dr. Riedenak and the head of the uh, Duke University nursing neuroendocrine nursing program, uh, who's going to be joining us to talk about neuroendocrine nursing education. We're very important because um, we need a lot. We need more neuroendocrine nurses. Absolutely. <laughs> so we want, yeah. <laughs> So we're happy to, and it's a very very interesting, uh, very interesting work that neuroendocrine nurses do, as you know, Doctor Blevins. Yeah. You know, I have two myself. Yeah. <laughs> work. yeah so, yeah. yeah, we should yeah. loop them into some of these things as well. Just they're, they're and we're going to invite them to that. Yeah. Extremely that important show, gonna, people. Yeah. To that show, which we hope to do soon, is we're going to invite Laura Cheng, who's a, a, also a nurse st- studying, getting her neuroendocrine certificate at Duke. And she did a podcast with a fascinating because Laura has acromegaly also. Oh, know, interesting. It's a fascinating person. Great, great, great uh, uh, story. So you you mentioned the future shows. I want to sort of direct people back to some of our old shows. So we did okay. a really, really great interview with Dr. Kunwar about what to expect before, during, and after surgery. Dr. Yes. Augie's done some good interviews. And, yes. and then we did a, a really fascinating show with ourselves and Drs. Perry and Augie talking about pituitary adenomas and nomenclature and followed that up with a really great show with Sylvia Asa. And to me, these are the four highlight shows that I would really say, if you like what you're hearing on these, go back and listen to those old shows, but pay particular attention to some of those that we just mentioned. Yeah. And the, uh, I would say that the, the way to get to those shows is you go to the front page of Pituitary World News and click on there. There's an on-demand button for the live talk. And then you'll go to a page where all those shows are listed with descriptions. So um, there's there's quite a few, 20-some shows that are from the live. Very All very interesting. Well, this has been great. Thanks for joining yeah. in the discussion today after your long-winded phone call. Yes. Yeah. I, I hope I didn't interrupt. I, I know you were, when I joined, you were, you were talking very interesting uh, case study on Cushing. So. Yeah. Started with Cushing's and then started with, uh, I just wanted to mention a couple of interesting caveats about thyroid hormone replacement uh, that I've seen in my patients to help help people understand that uh, sometimes you have to see a neuroendocrinologist to figure out even your thyroid hormone replacement uh, if you have pituitary disease. Uh, it's all very interesting. Yeah. Well, so, 
Well, I suppose that's it. Uh, yeah. I thank everybody for listening and uh, um, tune in for future shows and uh, let us know what you think. Any final yes, thoughts, thank- Jorge? Well, thank you so much for joining us and uh, uh, we look forward to our next show. So stay tuned. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a non-profit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.